Well, I am glad to be here this morning. It is indeed a great privilege, you know, over the last several years as all this was germinating and getting going, hearing about it, but it's so wonderful to be here. I mean, that's kind of one of the, the joys and the disappointments as I'm pastoring down and outside of Milwaukee and Delafield to, uh, to be, you know, on the phone or visiting during the week, getting up here when I can, but, you know, it's hard for me to get away and, and get up here. Uh, and I obviously can, can rest easy as, uh, Cornerstone is in good hands. Kyle Ferguson, the Freilich's son-in-law, is, uh, is, is the assistant down there at Cornerstone. So there's so many ties and connections between us as two churches. And more than I think some people realize as, as time goes on, you kind of begin to see it and, and hear it. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Um, so glad to be here. When, when Dan asked me to preach and he said he's going to be on vacation and he told me he's been going through Ephesians and I gave him the, the option. I said, so Dan, what, what do you want? Um, I can come and just do one out of the box, just one of those, you know, all of a sudden you're moving through Ephesians, Dan's on vacation and boom, you get a sermon from the Psalms or you get a sermon from, from one of the Gospels or something else. And I said, or I could just Follow whatever you're, you're doing. You're in Ephesians. What do you want me to do? And he said, hey, if you want to keep preaching through Ephesians, that would be great. And I didn't ask him what the text was. And I should have. Because <laughs> if you uh, take a look at the, the title or the passage, it's an interesting topic to invite a guest in to all of a sudden go, we're going to talk about sex. <laughs> oh, it's so uncomfortable. It's getting warm in here, I think. But uh, as we open up God's Word, let's, especially anytime we open up God's Word, especially this morning, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask that He would guide us as we hear His Word. Let's pray. Our God, our loving Creator, Redeemer, we come to You this morning so, oh, at times burdened from the past week, distracted perhaps. Perhaps it's been just a great week and we're looking forward to the week to come, but so we stop and recognize where our thoughts may have been to say, but God, you've got to bring us back to that, to the foot of the cross, to what you've done for us through your Son. And so, our gracious God, as we come and open up your word, open up our hearts, our minds, our very beings, that we would once again see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, yeah, it's a great way to get your attention. Sex. Just have to say the word, and people begin to go, okay, where's this going? It's perhaps a cliche, is it not, in our culture, in our world, to say that sex sells. That titillation that grabs our attention. Turn on the TV, sitcoms. They find their, their biggest laughs off the sexual innu innuendo. Those provocative uh, situations people find themselves in help carry the plot along. Well... We have to recognize that our libidinal drive so often outweighs everything else. That, that, that those desires that we are created with and we begin to, to look around the world and see, you know, this is a part of who we are. So often our preoccupation with sex can seem to exceed all other essential pleasures and sometimes, many times, can exceed our understanding of how we should live. A number of years ago, many years ago, a writer named C.S. Lewis wrote a great work called Mere Christianity. And in that book, he, he talks about sex and how twisted at times our world has always been. He says this, and I quote, 
Suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto a stage and then slowly lifting the lid of the cover so that everyone can see. Just before the lights go out, you spot a mutton chop or a piece of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone terribly wrong with their appetites? Now, I know bacon is really a great food. But if you think of it, you know, if you went to a country, you saw that kind of sensual excitement about food. Oh, they've got things all turned around. But then we look at our own world and say, what about us? When it comes to sex, we've twisted a good gift when it... It should come as no surprise that while many in our world will scoff at what we would call traditional morality. One guy a number of years ago has said, and I quote, chastity is no more of a virtue than malnutrition. It's that understanding indeed that, you know, not only we really can't control our urges, we shouldn't. There's something that we should embrace in our sexuality. Well... Yes and no. Humanity has always struggled with sex. It's a mistake to think that our age alone has discovered sexual freedom, throwing off the constraints that, that oh, it's just those prudish Christians and, that have been doing this. No, if you look throughout the history of the world, it has always been a struggle in humanity. It was a struggle in Ephesus. In the city of Ephesus, high up on the hill was the Temple of Diana, filled with all sorts of opportunities for pleasures that are beyond imagination. And I know many of us can have a pretty far-reaching imagination. And so in Paul's day, when he comes with these words, he's coming to a culture, I think, very much like us. And so when he writes these words, they are written to people just like you and like me. So hear now God's word in Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in the first verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness not, must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is, uh, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, does what Paul's saying there have something to do with us? It certainly does. Because the first thing we see here, and right, right in the middle, in verses 3 through 6, is that realization, you know, we have to ask the question, what does God command regarding our sexuality? What does God command regarding our sexuality? Let's take a look at that. First thing it says is we have to be guard on our actions. In verse 3, he talks about certain actions. And what are they? Sexual morality, impurity, covetousness. Let's talk about sexual immorality. The word there is porneia. It sounds a little familiar to our ears. We have the word pornography. Porneia was this all-encompassing term covering everything imaginable or unimaginable that might fall in that category. We think of pornography just in the visual sense. But for Paul in Paul's day, it was everything under the sun. 
And so he's saying that right there, that is not to be named among God's people. Now, we don't have uh, temples high up on a hill to go to. We can find it perhaps just in our own homes, in our own opportunities, when our apartments, our dorms, and begin to recognize, indeed, immorality doesn't seem that far away. And part of the reason is, this is the next term that he uses, not only immorality, but impurity. Notice what Paul's doing. He's starting with, with that external action, and he's turning it in to the internal action, impurity. Filthiness, sometimes the word is. This is the heart condition that propels the immorality, the pornea. This word uncleanness at times is is used in the physical sense. It's used of bodies decaying in the stench that's found there. You know, you can just kind of feel that in your nose. And Paul's saying that's what's going on on the inside that produces this action. Acts flow from thoughts. What we do, we do because of what we, we believe. Okay, then where did this, this internal stench come from? Look at the next word, covetousness. Some versions say greed, and really it's the, the same word, pleonexia. It's this idea of, of something that drives us, and what is it that drives us? It's a drive of saying, I want what I want, and I want it now. It's an inward focus. It's an internal gauge that says, I'm going after what is going to make me feel the best. And that's what he's describing here. Now, usually when we think of coveting or greed, what do we think of? We think of money and wealth, and it can include that, but it goes so much broader than that. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can look just up a few verses. In chapter 4 and verse 19, he uses the same, same phrase, uses the word greedy in some of the versions, or, uh, but it's really the same word. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice the same words used there. It's this internal state that is who we are. Selfish immorality is found in covetousness. And we can justify the immorality on what basis? Well, it, it's what I feel. It's, it's This is the person I love. And how can it be wrong if this is the way I feel? But Paul's saying he's not understanding what's behind our actions. Part of the problem sometimes is our feelings are so twisted and turned from what they should be. That's what he's describing here. Focus, though, is not so much on the act, but on the heart. Now, this is an important thing, because this is where sometimes, you know, people, you know, think about church and those Christians and churches. They're always talking about all these sinful acts and their hearts are just as evil. And Paul says, yes, you got it. You're right. And the problem often is, is we, we put up this, this veneer of morality, this goodness. I'm a moral person. And Paul's saying, look at your heart. Are you driven by wants and desires that you want to feed on yourself? Then you're in the same spot as the most deviant of acts that we could think of. But it's not only our actions we have to be on guard. We also must guard not just our actions, but we have to guard our words. So here Paul's saying it's not just what you're acting and even thinking that produces the acts. It's what also flows out of your mouth. List a few there. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Paul moves from immoral conduct to to immoral speech. It's not just, you know, saying, not joking about what is immoral or inappropriate. 
Sometimes the words there are obscene, the word that Paul uses in the Greek talks about this, this sense of, of, of that which is ugly or, or hard. We don't want to look at it. But in this case, we not just want to look at it, we want to talk about it. Our word obscene that we use in English, which really is similar to this, is, is a word that comes from the Latin, from the stage. Obscene. You think of scenery on a stage. It's a theater term. It's that which occurs off the stage. Now, in our day and in Paul's day, what took place on the stage sometimes was, well, fairly graphic. But it's this sense of going, it's so bad, it even occurs off stage. And that's what Paul's talking about here, watching our words. Of, are we saying things that really shouldn't, are not for public consumption, even if that public is just you and a friend? But it's not only that, foolish talk, literally foolish talk, moronic words, Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, talked about this term, foolish talk. And he said, foolish talk, or these moronic words, was a term used to describe the vocabulary of the uneducated. This is the, the bathroom humor. This is the scatological terms that, that kind of have that, that adolescent who never grew up type of mentality. I mean, you can hear when, when Aristotle describes that with a certain air of superiority. Because it's the next term that he really liked, crude joking. Now, in English, crude joking, you might think, is just the same. You know, it's this, this is hangover part two, right? You know, we're moving right along. It's all the same thing, correct? Now, what Aristotle was saying in the way this word was understood in the ancient world was, no, it's a bit more. The word crude joking wasn't the scatological humor. Crude joking was the, the witticisms, the euphemisms, the way of just insinuating something that is, should be done as between a husband and a wife behind closed doors. But I'll just say it and introduce it. And everyone kind of chuckles, holding their Chardonnay, going, ha, 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 that was funny. That's the description here. He's covering all the bases. It's not just the, the filthy words from, from someone who just lashes out in the worst way. It's that phrase, the innuendo that's kind of dropped. Paul's saying, you've got to watch those words. See, now, you've got to be careful here. It sounds at first, you know, okay, Paul, you're, you're a wet blanket. You're saying, you know, I can't tell a good joke or a funny story. Are Christians supposed to be these humorless sorts that, that can't laugh at a thing? Not at all. And, and because what he's saying here, it's not because it's, it's, it's something that should be avoided. It's, well, take a look more at what he says here. It's the sense of treating things as gross or trivial, or filthy, or with a certain degree of flippancy. Not because they are bad, but because they are so wonderfully good. We'll look at that a bit more in just a minute. But there's a reason we see this at that very end in verse 6. Why should we be treating it like this? It's because we have to be aware of the penalty that's involved. We must guard our words, our actions, because there's a penalty involved. And the penalty is very uh, serious. When life is based on immorality, whether actions or words, we have to understand to be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or of God. God's wrath is upon them. We're not going to turn to it right now, but 1 Corinthians, likewise, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 has some of the same words. It's, it's the same idea that there's a penalty when we treat as profane that which is good and wonderful. 
And it's there we begin to see not only what does God have to, to say indeed about our, our sexuality, not only to be able to uh, know what does God command regarding our sexuality, that there's an, an answer to it in the same passage. And you don't see it right away. So we see here secondly and finally that what, what does God offer regarding our sexuality? Now, at first, it seems like all these negatives. And again, people go, yeah, typical Christian. No, 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 no. What about yes, yes, yes? Well, it's found here a little bit. It's the sense of what, what do we put on? And I'm not sure how, how Dan's been, been preaching uh, through Ephesians, but you have this, this picture right in the central portion of describing the Christian life, of what, how we dress, how we put on Christ. It's not the external clothes that we wear by any means. It's really what does our life look like in light of Christ dying on the cross for my sins 2,000 years ago? What should be different? And Paul's saying here, what should be different is getting rid of those old, filthy, stench-covered rags to something much better. Again, we say this not because, you know, we're, 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 we're speaking negatively of our sexuality. Now, yeah, in the church history, it's happened at times. Augustine was famous for saying that uh, if at all possible, avoid sex of any sort. And if you're married, well, you better not enjoy it. And kind of Christians since then have been kind of going, okay, what does this life look like? That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying here, as we kind of hinted at, that because sex is so wonderful, sex outside of marriage is wrong. Humor about such a thing, such a wonderful gift, is so important. It's, it's, like, well, it's like making you know, crude jokes about the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ. You wouldn't do that. Or, 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 or ridiculing Scripture and saying something horrendously sexually implicit. And you go, no, that's not, that's, just, that's gross. In the same sense, he's saying about our sexuality is so wonderful and so good and God-given. He's saying, watch out. Because God has given you something wonderful. Don't twist it and rub it in the mud. Again, psychologists have found that people who who take these words to heart, guard their, their hearts, their mouths, their actions, their thoughts, see a definite positive benefit. A study in the journal Family Psychology found that couples who waited until marriage to have sex were much more sexually satisfied in their relationship. They had a much more positive view of themselves physically and in their relationship with, with their spouse, with, with other people. Those who waited to have sex reported 15% higher satisfaction, 22% higher marital stability. And just relationship satisfaction likewise fifth higher. And so we have to wonder, okay, instead of humor, how should we respond? Look at verse 4. He begins to give a hint to the answer. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. See, this is what Paul does. Not this. We have something else to say. There's this. Thanksgiving. Being able to speak positively in a healthy, open manner of saying, God has created me and it is good and this is where it can be enjoyed and I need to be thankful for that. God's not just telling us stop thinking about sex, to cease being who we are. Rather, our starting point is to be thankful, not dominated by internal discontentment. Remember those, the actions, how it flows out of that covetous greed? At the heart of that is saying, God, you're not good. 
You haven't given me the opportunity for the satisfaction I want, I demand, I need. And therefore, I'm going to go after it how I think it's best to happen. Whether, you know, in my marriage and the demands I put on my spouse to come or to go, or as a single person to say, God, you know, I'm made for a relationship, but you haven't put that man or that woman in my life, and it's, it, 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 this can't be right. I've got to fulfill what I want. Paul's saying here, you're not being thankful for where God has placed you. But that's not the end. If we stop right there, and fortunately we won't, as we come to wrap this up, all we're hearing at this point in verses 3 through 6 is, no, 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 do, do, do. And you go, great, I'm, am I any better? I know that, that the things I look at and the things that I do, I know they're, they're not pleasing God. And I know I should be thankful, but I'm not. How can I really be different? What effect does Christ's death and resurrection have on my sexuality? A lot. And what is that? You've got to look up what we have to put on. What we have to put on is really the answer. And those are in those first two verses. And I know, I believe Dan preached on those first two verses. And when he and I talked, you know, he said, well, you know, do you just do three to six? I went, oh, no. <laughs> you know what? There's no hope in three to six. By itself, you go, it's all law. And we realize, I failed. You and I can't do three to six. But what has God done? Look at verse one again. Therefore, be imitators of God. Okay. Does that help? Go imitate God. <sighs> Paul, you're not helping here. I'm, I'm drowning. But that next phrase, as beloved children. There's the hope. That's where it really begins. As those who have been adopted by God, as sons and daughters of the living God, brought into His family, you're going, now I can begin to understand more clearly what does it look like? How should I treat those around me? That sister in Christ, that brother in Christ. Perhaps they, they don't know Christ at all, but you know what? Made in the image of God, how should I view them? Through what lens? What, what was the lens that God viewed me in that he did what? That's in the, those next verses. What does it say? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. How do you really then spell love? Now, in our culture, love is spelled S-E-X. It's spelled pleasure. It's about what I get. But what has God done for us in Christ? It's about sacrifice. It's about giving up of our needs for someone else. And then we begin to see who we are and how we're made, whether in a, in a long-term marriage that's been going on for years and still begin to recognize it's about sacrifice and not... Oh, sacrifice, woe is me. It's about what can I do to build you up? As a single person, it's the same thing, the same picture. And so we, we see here that the correctives to all of this is this idea of beloved children. Rather than the stench of decay and death associated with immorality, with impurity, rather than the false worship of getting what feels good, that idolatry that he describes here, it's that simple realization of Christ's death 
not only sets the motivation for us, that's where the power is found. That's where we, we get a different perspective of not just my sin, but my hope. Because you'll leave here and say, you know what, this week I'm going to really try to be less immoral. Go for it. You should. Let's see how long it lasts in reality. For me, not long. I need a Savior. I need someone who will, when I have fallen, will say, you're my child. You're not behaving like the Son of God that you are. And I, I sent my son to die for you. His death is a fragrant offering. What you're doing is a filthy stench. But you know what? I'm not going to rub your face in the filthy stench. I'm going to call you my child for whom my son died. And you're going to say, God, forgive me. Your son's death is sufficient that I can live in a way that honors and glorifies you. The picture of, of covering and clothing in this, this passage, we see it earlier, won't look at it right now, but is the sense of how God treats us. How does he do that? When you have failed and fallen in any sense, the words you speak, the thoughts, the actions, is he rubbing your face in the filth or does he say, I've got something better for you. Come here. I've got clothing for you. Thankfulness. In the same way, he gives us what's right over here. This sense of, of a feeding, of a nourishment that is indeed here for us. He doesn't tell you, okay, people, I've sent my son. He died for you. Get with the program. Go out, make yourself strong, live for me, and we'll be okay. No. He says, you know what? I know you're hungry. I know you're struggling with this. And I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give to you what, what will make you strong. And not just you as a person, but you as a people. I'm going to make Jacob's well a healthy, strong, nourished, growing church. How so? Well, I want you to eat and drink. I want you to remember the gospel for you individually, for you as a people. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as he describes the Lord's table in a way that in that same context in the church in Corinth, sexually immoral, uh, not unlike our day and age, not unlike our hearts. Hear what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. First glance, that sounds like, you know, get your act together and eat this. What does it mean to be unworthy? It means to think that you can reform your life on your own. It means to, that, that you don't really need Jesus. You're just taking this because you are good enough. 
God's pleased with you so much you get to come to the table. No. It's the opposite. You're coming because you're hungry. You need Jesus so much more now. And so we set these elements apart. Common elements, simple elements, as a reminder indeed of of God's grace, of God's mercy. That reminder is for us as his people. As Jesus on that night when he was betrayed and he he took the bread and and he broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. As As he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. You're welcome to come. If indeed you know Jesus Christ as as your Savior, as you're looking to Him, not yourself, but to Him, come. This is a table for all of us. If you don't know Christ, if if you're still in that phase, you're kind of thinking about it, investigating it, is Christianity really right for me? You know what, I'd encourage you, let, let the elements pass, but speak with Dan or one of the men and women who are leading here to be able to say, what is this all about? What does this mean? In that case, let it pass, and but talk to one of us. The elders would come forward at this time. So we pass the elements out. As we've heard the words of institution read, to be reminded that once again, you pass them all together? Oh, okay. That's okay. I still forgive you.